everyone. This is your host, Ashley Grigsby, and I am here today with Dr. Nina Jube Desai, who is a neonatology fellow in Washington, D.C., and is a podcaster in her own right, so everyone should go listen to her. Her podcast is called NICU Grad Podcast, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes. And today, she is going to uh, talk to us about um, kind of the world of NICU, because we haven't had a good uh, NICU podcast yet. And I'm so glad that you're our first, like, collaborative. So welcome. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. I am excited to be here. Um, I don't I don't know if you know, um, your podcast was what was the inspiration for my podcast. When I was studying for Pete's boards, I was would listen to your podcast. And I always would say, I wish there was something like this for the NICU. Well, so, we really, we really like appreciate that. And that's exactly how we started too, is we wanted what we decided to make. So I think it's awesome. And we're very happy for you. Um, listeners, you will, uh, if you go all the way back to 2016, there is an episode on normal newborn, Emily Wagner, Dr. Emily Wagner, and, um, did with one of our neonatology, neonatologists at IU, and they will discuss um, all the delivery room, APGAR score stuff, and all the normal newborn stuff. But today we're going to focus on abnormal newborn. So I guess let's just start. Perfect. Yeah. You good? Okay. Yeah. Let's the first it. thing is can we, let's talk about if you're getting called to a delivery, what situations may increase the risk of this being a bad delivery? Ooh, that's a really good question. And something I always think, I always, you know, assess what are my risk factors? Um, so the biggest question I ask myself, or the most important, is what's the gestation? So I want to know prematurity, if it's a premature baby or not, because that, in my mind, I have a whole different set of questions to ask. So I want to know, is it a preterm baby versus a full-term baby? If I know estimated fetal weight, that's a huge uh, risk factor. Um, so a lot of the birth traumas are really associated with those large babies. So those LGA babies. So any baby above, you know, four kilos, um, even five kilos, those babies, uh, the macrosomic babies are going to have higher complications. So whether it be shoulder dystocia, getting stuck, um, they uh, can, you may need instrumentation. So whether you, you need to use forceps or vacuum assisted deliveries. So Bigger the bigger the baby, the more complications. Um, what about like maternal factors? Is there anything about mom? Absolutely, yeah. If there, if, if um mom has diabetes, so it's like an infant of a diabetic mom, will definitely put you at increased risk because again, those those moms will have larger babies, and so that puts you at an increased risk of having complications as well. Other things with mom itself is mom, sometimes uh, the OBs will let you know about any concerns about their pelvis, right? So if it's a small pelvis or if it's their first baby, potentially they may, um, if they have a narrow canal, it may be harder to extract the baby. So those are things that are important. Other things to consider is what's the position of the baby, right? So is it a breech position, face position? Um, those things definitely play a role. With the breech positions, you worry about you know, the OB has to grab the baby by the foot. You can see some difficulties, either bruising you can obtain from that, also potentially uh, being more dangerous situations where the baby gets stuck in the canal, especially with the head. 
because the head honestly is the biggest part the hardest part to get out and if you're in a breech position and if that's the last thing to come out and it doesn't come out listen this is my situation i like have literally nightmares about this happening in the er and being like oh crap what do i do yeah nightmares it's fine (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's it's scary i mean it's you'd be surprised there's so many little tiny little steps that is required for both mom, for the baby, and the provider who's delivering to deliver a healthy baby. And luckily, most of our babies do well. But then there's, you know, a certain percentage that they have complications. Well, the um, the boards wants, want us to know kind of about neurologic injuries that can occur from the result of birth trauma. Do you want to go over kind of the most common ones? Yeah. So things that I worry about are like the nerve injuries um so risk factors for nerve injuries are anytime you use instrumentation so um the one that everyone knows about is forceps so whenever i get called to a forceps delivery i'm doing a very thorough neuro exam um specifically i'm looking at the face and the things that i'm looking for is there asymmetry when they cry do i see the frown on both sides are they able to open their eyes equally um on both sides do I see the creases around the nose and around the face, around the mouth? Um, anytime I see some asymmetry, I worry, huh, I wonder if the, the forceps put some pressure on the facial nerve and as a result cause some injury to that. Do you know, if you had to guess which side was affected, is it the side that's uh, frowning? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to guess by the question, it's the not frowning side because otherwise I don't think you'd ask me the question. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you know, because everyone thinks in the yeah, adult yeah. World, uh, yeah. world, you know, drooping, it's a stroke. That's the bad side. But in the baby they world. They cry all the, the time. World, Is that what you're telling droop- me? Oh, yeah. I've had some children. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the crying is important. And so when they cry, I like purposely will make a baby cry and see is there symmetry. If one, if the right side, I could see a nice good frown and they're crying, but the left side's you know, it doesn't look like they're frowning and they're almost like smiling. That's the left side that's affected. They should be having a frown too when they're crying on that side. So that's the side that's affected. Um, but a lot of times I tell families I see it. It resolves on its own. Um, it's usually what never about some permanent, other permanent injury. injuries or less, it's not as bad or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so then going down, um, other concerns are looking at like the palsies with your extremities. So the buzzwords that you think of are the uh, waiter's tip position um, that you see with the herbs palsy. So that's an upper arm palsy that's uh, affected with the fifth and sixth cervical nerve roots. Um, And so those babies you'll see presenting just when you have them lie on the warmer you'll see them in that certain position where they look like truly they are in that waiter's tip position. You'll see some unilateral arm weakness. So when you do the Moreau and you're assessing them, they won't move that arm as well. Um, And then when you think about the lower arm, you think of Klumpke's palsy, which affects the eighth nerve and the first thoracic nerves. Not as common. It's definitely, you know, takes me back to step one (laughs) first aid book, but um, obviously something to know. Uh, Usually the ones I've seen if it's an arm injury, it's really the waiter steps of the herbs palsy. And then even more rare is the phrenic nerve injury. So those are the babies where you may see asymmetric chest breathing. So 
They look like they're taking a breath, but the one side may not be moving as well. I mean, that's something you can potentially confirm on X-ray mm. when you see like almost like a hemi diagram. That sounds diagram. great. Not it. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not what I would like to have. Okay. Definitely not. But what we're talking about all our uh, peripheral nerve injuries, right? So those are all important to know and identify. And a lot of times they get better. But the other ner- other neuro injuries are more the HIE picture. So the hypoxic uh, ischemic encephalopathy picture. So those are things that you really need to be identifying very early on because there's management that you can do for the babies. Have you ever seen a baby with HIE? Before? Oh, yeah. We did a lot of NICU for our program. It. But yeah. So it's... Uh, yeah, we cool them <laughs> sometimes and lots of like kind of neuroprotective stuff like we almost like we do in adults, to be honest. Absolutely. And so those babies, it's more instead of being that focal lesion where you're seeing maybe an arm or a face injury, you're seeing global um, deficits. So those babies look sometimes the quote unquote down or where they're seizing. just not really responding. They're apneic. Yeah, all those things. You may not necessarily see seizures at the time of delivery, but they look, they just look flaccid. Flaccid, not responding, not sucking. When you do the Moreau, they don't really do anything. They just kind of limp, um, the ones that are really bad. And so those are the babies, if they're really bad, sometimes you have to intubate them. It becomes, it, the ones that are severe are the ones that uh, you end up having to admit right away to the NICU and do the cooling and all those. But luckily, once they are cooled, and a few days later, a lot of them awesome. do pretty well okay here's some stuff that's not as big a deal but for some reason i can never remember yeah i don't know why can sure. you tell us the difference between the caput secundum cephalohematoma and subgaleal hemorrhage oh i do remember as a resident never remembering it and then the, you know the attending yeah, would right. ask you or quote-unquote pimp you and you'd be like oh man yeah, just, it's like truth a 50 is you just 50 guessed, which one and is then if you got it right you looked great and if you didn't whatever but luckily okay, i have a trick okay, for you to remember it okay so okay so kaput secundum two words that's how that's all you need to remember it's two words so because of that it crosses suture lines and then from there, you can understand what that really means. So when I when I think of kaput secundum, it's swelling of the, right, it, the swelling right underneath the skin. It's very superficial. And because it's just, it's very superficial and right under the skin, it, it crosses the suture lines on the skull. Um, and it's a very benign thing. And it resolves within a few days. Um, usually, the reason why it presents, it's because it's a lot of pressure. The baby's going through the canal. And... There's just like swelling and edema in those like focal areas, but and you see it right away at the time of birth. There's no treatment. Babies do great. In comparison, cephalohematoma, it's one word, so it stays, doesn't cross suture lines. And so as a result, the way to think of that, it's, you know, it's um, subperiosteal collection of blood. And so it's a result, the mechanism of action, it's a result of rupture of the blood vessels of the vessels that so it's are right closer to the bone the basically which is why it doesn't cross um, okay okay pretty much exactly and so the, so i always whenever i'm like assessing a baby's head I'm, I'm i'm feeling the suture lines and then i'm i'm trying to identify where is the swelling if it's crossing suture lines you know it's a caput secundum very superficial it's it, it's edema it's not really a bleed 
cephalohematoma, hematoma, which the word hematoma bleed is there. It's one word. It's that means it's definitely bleeding underneath that subperiosteum, and it um, does not cause suture lines. Um, and it's usually unilateral. Um, it usually isn't as it's not as present at the time of birth, but it eventually evolves. So within a few days, and those are the ones that are increase the risk bigger. of hyperbilirubinemia. Correct, the cephalohematoma. Blood. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Because it's it's a bleed. Yeah. Blood. Hematoma. But again, luckily, it's a, a benign bleed in general. It's just very slow. It doesn't cause any major problems. It resolves within a few weeks. And so it's, for the most part... All right. What about the subgaleal hemorrhage? Ooh. So this is subgaleal. You should... Care about? You know, okay. This is an emergency. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's an emergency. So subgaleal, um, it's interesting. It's it's uh, bleeding that's specifically above the periosteum, so above the skull bone, but underneath um, the epicranial aponeurosis, which is just like a membrane above the periosteum. And, and the reason why it's important that you know the location is because that location has no boundaries. It's a huge place to bleed. So if, when you do bleed, you can keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, and almost to the point that you can a baby can go into hemorrhagic shock. So it's it's a space that has no boundaries and it can really expand. And so because of that, if a baby has that type of bleed, uh, they it can potentially lead to death if it's not appropriately identified. And one of the most common risk factors are usually instrumentation. So specifically the vacuum assist assisted deliveries, you'll see potentially okay. a subgaleal hemorrhage. No. Do you know how mm-hmm. you can identify it on exam? Have you ever? So the things that I look at are is really for a excessive swelling. And the areas that I'm looking at are uh, not the same areas that you would see in a caput or a cephalohematoma, right? So those are more on top of your head. But the subgaleal, because there are no boundaries, you see swelling near like the temporal region. You'll see maybe proptosis of the ear. Um, it's like more just like near the, the eyebrows, that kind of region. And so, and it's, again, there's no boundary. So their baby's bleeding, bleeding, and it's just going, you know, everywhere. Anytime you see excessive swelling, proptosis of the ear, really uh, asymmetry or swelling near the temporal regions, I definitely am concerned. The classic like triad is babies that are tachycardic. They have this very large um, head circumference, and those babies were constantly checking head circumferences because you'll see rapidly increasing head circumferences within the first 24 hours. And then you're also checking their, their hematocrit, and you'll see drops in their hematocrit quite a bit. So these babies, you are definitely admitting to the NICU. And probably giving them their vitamin K shot, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. <sighs> Another interesting thing you'll see on exam and I've definitely seen it on, on some babies is they have, you see the fluid wave sign where you will, you know, touch what, let's say the right side of the swelling and you can see like a ripple effect of like the fluid, like of the swelling almost moving on the left side of the, of the head because there's just so much fluid. Um, so that whenever you see like any of that, those are like, you know, badness. buzzwords, badness, you must admit to the NICU, must do, do some head imaging. Get your essential lines in, get your labs. This baby may become um, hemodynamically unstable, so you may need to get blood products. I mean, this is a very scary situation. 
Luckily, okay. it doesn't happen often, but when, you, when it does, you need to be ready for it. Well, um, the next thing on our list is another one of my nightmares that keeps me up at night. One of my really good friends is a is an OB-GYN, and I've told her that um, when she gets a call from me at 3 a.m., she has to answer because... I work at an ER where we don't have peds, which I'm fine with because I'm a peds person. That's cool. But we don't have OB either. And I know one day I'm going to get a shoulder dystocia. A delivering mom who went to the wrong hospital and is a shoulder dystocia. <laughs> and there's nothing that freaks me out more than this. So tell me some clinical features of like kind of the baby and how you know it's a shoulder dystocia and what they might look like after delivery if you get them out. To be honest, I think of shoulder dystocia almost like any baby that has a difficult extraction. But the the more common, more specific features I'm looking for are looking at the shoulders and seeing if when I palpate, do they feel, do, are they in pain? Is there any evidence of a clavicle fracture? Um, I'm doing a good neuro exams to look to see if there's any uh, peripheral nerve injury. So looking, making sure there's symmetry when they do the Moreau they have good grasp there's no unilateral weakness so those are the main things I'm looking for from a shoulder arm perspective and then other things to consider just globally whenever you think of shoulders as social you have to think okay they were stuck in the canal there's potentially compression of the umbilical cord and them not breathing and not also not getting blood right so now you want to just make sure like ABCs are they are they breathing? Are they getting, are they perfusing well? Are they pink? Are they making sure all those things are there as well? So it's two components. Globally, you're looking at just their ABCs and making sure they're appropriately hemodynamically stable. And then you're looking more, the second part is like the focal stuff, looking, making sure there's no clavicle fractures, making sure there's no nerve injury uh, or trauma from that standpoint. Okay. Well, officially the baby's out. Uh, baby's delivered. Baby's alive shockingly, because of all this crap that can go wrong. But here we are. Uh, <laughs> the miracle of birth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, of course, you know, terrifies all of us who are happy children. But anyways, um, now the baby's born, and you have the baby at the warmer, and you're assessing them. And let's talk about some more, like, kind of respiratory distress type stuff. Does that work? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one is... In the name, respiratory distress syndrome, which I think most of us know, but we should talk about because it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. So what patient population do you think of? It's my favorite pop patient population that has respiratory distress. The little tiny yeah. babies. The little tiny babies. The little less than 34 Absolutely. weeks. Absolutely. Oh, most yes. Uh, most of the time. Or the IDM. Yes, you know. for sure. Um, so respiratory distress, really, it's related to the fact that it's some immaturity of the lungs, right? So it's related to not having enough surfactant. And, and as a result, if you don't have enough surfactant, you aren't able to open up your VLI and the surface tension isn't quite there. Um, so these babies will present with some tachypnea, work of breathing. We'll need some respiratory support. The classic features that you'll need to know for boards um, they'll show you an image of an x-ray, and it'll have that brown, glassy appearance. And not so COVID. Not COVID. <laughs> not COVID. Thank God, not COVID. So it's ground glass appearance that you'll see. And uh, 
for those, depending on how premature the baby, um, some babies, if they're really premature, you'll give surfactant, especially if they're requiring a lot of oxygen. But if it's like a late preterm baby, they still can have some component of RDS, but you might not necessarily give them surfactant. You just give them some time because eventually even the preterm babies, they may not have surfactant within that first few days of life. But eventually once they're born, their body realizes, oh my God, I'm, I'm out of mom. I'm in the real world. I need to make my own surfactant. So then eventually they do make their, they produce their own surfactant. Got it. Got it. Okay. I actually don't know that I know the answer to this, so I'm hoping you do. Uh, they want us to differentiate. <laughs> yeah. They want us to differentiate the difference between respiratory distress syndrome from congenital pneumonia. Ooh. So the, the, the problem is it's hard to differentiate it because congenital pneumonia. Um, so classically, when you're thinking of that, usually it's like GBS pneumonia. And GBS pneumonia also presents as ground glassy appearance on x-ray so it's a heart like looks the same yeah so when you so it's the same baby right it's a baby that's still in respiratory distress needing respiratory support the x-rays kind of look the same so it's hard to differentiate so the things that you have to like look at are some of the subtle risk factors right so what's the gestation age if it's a, a, a premature baby or a late preterm maybe you can blame it on that you want to know GBS status, right? So if mom is GBS positive, especially inadequately treated, maybe you can say it's not RDS, especially if it's a full-term baby. If it's, a full t- if it's definitely a full-term baby and mom is GBS positive, you can definitely lean towards more GBS pneumonia. It's not an easy, di- uh, easy way to differentiate between the two, besides looking at your risk factors. Okay. Clinically, they present the same way. Well, um, the next one is one of my favorites, actually, because I've had a lot of them for whatever reason in my life to take care of is pneumothorax in the little babies. They're fun, kind of. But what is kind of the clinical and uh, appearance of this and how do you what do you do about it? Good question. So pneumothorax, I mean, it depends what type of pneumothorax it is and how big it is. But in general, they'll present like any other baby in respiratory distress. Um, If it's really bad, let's say a tension pneumothorax where there's a lot of air that's causing a shift, shifting of of lung parenchyma as well as the heart. Uh, Those babies can be not only in respiratory stress, but hemodynamically unstable. Um, So those are the babies that are on uh, respiratory support potentially high respiratory support, and it, it seems like they're just working really hard. You can't, they are desatting. You just really can't, contr- you know, get a good handle on that. So those are the babies you want to make sure you get um, an x-ray right away. Um, sometimes while I'm waiting for the x-ray, I may use even a, a trans illuminator to see if I can see this in asymmetry, if the one side lights up more, suggesting more air. On exam, I'm also listening to see if there's asymmetry as well, that maybe one side sounds... Uh, uh, I don't hear much breath sounds versus the other side I do. And so for those babies, if it's especially if it's a large pneumothorax, I want to needle aspirate it and remove the air. Sometimes needle aspiration is just enough. Other times you may need to put a chest tube in and have them really drain out the air and they have that chest tube in for a couple of days, potentially longer, depending on how bad it is. Like the tiniest chest tube on the planet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tiny. Okay, uh, the next one is meconium aspiration syndrome. 
These can be nasty. So nasty. That's like my biggest, not my biggest fear, but I definitely, you know, especially with the babies that are post-date babies, they tend to have the, the meconium aspiration. And it just really, some babies, it's no big deal. But for others, it can become a really, sometimes a really long stay in the NICU. Yeah, like ECMO and stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We see that quite often, unfortunately. And so when you think about meconium aspiration syndrome, it's meconium. So it's the baby's first poop, right? In essence, they swallow it and um, it causes like a chemical pneumonitis of their lungs and it inactivates the surfactant um, and it just causes irritation. And as a result, they have significant respiratory distress. They're high risk of having pneumothoraxes. They need a lot of respiratory support. So it all depends on how much they swallowed, right? So if there's trace meconium, as like the OBT may say, uh, if it's very minimal, it's no big deal. Some babies do fine. But the ones that are sometimes, let's say they swallowed quite a bit, they're the ones that end up coming to the NICU and need a lot of respiratory support um, to the point where they may have to be even intubated. They may even need, they may have some cardiac issues like persistent pulmonary hypertension um, where they are not doing, they're not transitioning well from a cardiac, cardiac physiology from uh, in utero to postnatal transitioning. And then the worst case scenario is that they need ECMO support where the ECMO support really gives their lungs a break and the, the machine itself helps oxygenate the blood and give the blood back to the baby until the lungs really heal. So it's a kind of a, it's a big deal. That's why you can't be going long. You gotta get that baby out. <laughs> I say that, but not everyone agrees with me. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I'm like, let's go, 39 weeks, get that baby out. Uh <laughs> Okay, our last one we're going to do is transient tachypnea of the newborn. TTN. Yeah, TTN. It's actually one of my favorite uh, respiratory physiology thing or pathophysiology to discuss. And I'm going to put a little plug. There's actually an episode on this on the NICU Grad podcast. So you should all take a listen. Uh, but I'll give you a quick summary or a sneak peek. But with TTN, it's all really related to ineffective absorption of fetal lung fluid. And so if you had to guess, when does the fetal lung fluid absorb? When you squeeze them out. Oh, I know. Wouldn't that be so nice? I know. I feel like that's, we, that's the answer we tell our parents. I know, right? I mean, our parents, the parents, yeah. right? But that, that's really not know. the real answer. Probably labor <laughs> so it's actually, or something. Yeah. So it actually happens in a three-phase approach. It happens prenatally. Prenatally, there's changes in the expression of these channels. These channels called ENAC. Don't really, you guys don't need to know this for pediatric boards, but all you need to know is that there's these channels that play a role in fluid, uh, fetal lung fluid absorption. And so days before you're about to deliver, they change. And as a result, all of a sudden you're absorbing one third of the fluid in the lungs before even labor happens. In addition, you go into labor, so that's one-third's done, going to labor, you go into your second third of absorption. And so during that labor process, you have all these hormones, your steroids, your epinephrine, all these play a role. And again, they impact that, that channel that says, hey, it's time to reabsorb some more fetal fluid. So that's before, during labor, and then after labor, you do the last third of reabsorption. And the labs, um, that's when the, the baby does their first cry, the lungs open up, 
And the body realizes, oh, I got to change my physiology from in utero physiology to now postnatal physiology. And it continues, the baby continues to reabsorb the fluid. So it's a three part process that happens before, during labor, and then after the birth. Which is probably why these like scheduled C sections are the worst, right? Because they didn't have labor at all. Exactly. So they, they were don't just have. Like, hey, you're coming home today. Exactly. So they don't have that labor process. And so they miss out on that one third of the body going through those changes and realizing, hey, I need to be continuing to reabsorb the fluid. Because of that, uh, we know that usually it's uh, the risk factors are yeah, C-section without any labor. For whatever reason, males are affected more than females. Uh, infants of diabetic moms are definitely affected as well and large babies. And so they present, like any other baby, in some respiratory distress, some tachypnea, increased work of breathing. Luckily, though, this is a, a pathophysiology that resolves within a few days. So they may need some breathing support like CPAP, and then within a few days, by day two or day three of life, they're off of breathing support and are doing great. Perfect. Those little boys, they're always wimpy, right? That's what we always say. Um, okay. I, we are almost done with all this, all of this kind of birth injury type stuff. We already kind of talked a little bit about hypoxia, uh, like HIE and ischemic, uh, um, ischemia with hypoxia, but they do want us to know kind of a differential for neonatal seizures. Do you want to kind of just, what are the, you know, top things you think about when a kid is seizing, even though sometimes they don't seize clinically, but. Yeah, so neonatal seizures are is is definitely interesting. Um, it all depends on a lot of different things about the timing, what are the risk factors, like what other like what are the history is going on. So if the, definitely if there's a concern that there was a traumatic delivery, or a perinatal depression, you know the first thing I'm thinking of is HIE, right? And if they're especially if it's an HIE baby and we're cooling and seizures, they go hand in hand. But let's say there's a baby that doesn't have any of that. A normal delivery, no perinatal depression, and all of a sudden is seizing. Well, that's an interesting case, right? So then you really have to ask, like, what's going on? So, A, B, C, D, F, G. Don't forget the glucose. I was about to say, it's like in the emergency, what that's do you my check thing. first? Yeah, glucose. So glucose. So you want to make sure that they're, what's their glucose level? Are they hypoglycemic? Especially in the beginning, right? Some babies, if they're like, especially if they're exclusively breastfed, they may not get enough feeds. Or if they're formula fed and just not feeding well, you can become hypoglycemic. And so you want to know, are they hypoglycemic? You want to know, are they septic? Is there any risk factors for sepsis? Or are they acting sick? In that baby, you want to be doing a whole full sepsis workup, including a lumbar puncture. Other things you really want to assess that are a little bit harder to do, depending on your institution, is you want to assess, is, did the baby have a stroke? Whenever I think of seizures and it's not sepsis or or HIE, I, I'm thinking stroke, some embolic event. And so sometimes you'll see that, especially with um, moms that have unhealthy placenta. So if they had preeclampsia, they can be um, kind of sending off emboli through the placenta and you can babies can present with um, perinatal strokes. And so those babies will, you know, come to like a NICU, get some head imaging, and you'll see evidence of some asymmetry on the MRIs and suggesting that they did have a stroke. 
there's those are the main things I look. Other things to consider is like electrolyte abnormalities. Not as common of an etiology, but I definitely want to evaluate for that just to make sure I'm being thorough. Um, but for the most part, it's HIE, hypoglycemia, sepsis, and then strokes. Um, also, if they have like if they're dysmorphic or if they have any syndromes, you you know in general if they have like a congenital anomaly or a head bleed, those also can cause um, strokes as well. So whenever you see seizures, any concerns, you have to do full head-to-toe evaluation on exam, but also with your labs and your, your imaging. Okay. Okay, the last, we're going to cover two more things that are kind of a little hodgepodgey, but go along with this baby in distress right after delivery. So let's uh, talk about kind of some basic features on history or physical exam that make you worried that this patient's distress is from a congenital heart lesion. Like they have no prenatal care, so you got nothing. Just showed up. It's always it's it's always like that. The mom that comes in with no prenatal care that has a crazy diagnosis with their baby. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so it's for whenever I think of cyanotic lesions or congenital heart disease, it's usually a baby that looks actually pretty comfortable. They're not, you know, maybe happily tachypneic, not in, you know, looking in that much distress, but they're cyanotic. For whatever reason, they just look blue and, you know, looking cute, but but blue. Blue. (laughs) And so those babies, you know, I definitely, especially when I get a history that I don't have prenatal care, uh, they do not have ultrasounds, or maybe it's a mom that's an infant, you know, it's an infant of a diabetic mom, something to that effect. Those are the babies I definitely worry about of a congenital lesion. So anytime I'm considering that, I'm doing a full like evaluation. So a good cardiac exam, listening to if there's any murmurs, putting on a pulse ox pre and postductally, assessing for um, a good fe- femoral pulses, what's their perfusion, and that's just your exam. Then I'm g- getting an arterial gas because anytime I think of cyanosis, I want to know. I want to confirm that there's arterial hypoxemia. So what is your PAO2? So you're getting doing an art stick for that. And in general, if you by this point, you know, you're you're having your the baby's on some sort of respiratory support and ideally 100% oxygen. And you can see if if after administering 100% oxygen, what does your PAO2 look right? So if your baby's PAO2 is greater than 300, looking crazy high, the baby doesn't have congenital heart disease, right? Then I don't, then it's a different reason of why they're cyanotic. Mm-hmm. But if it's low, especially like less than 100 and you're on already 100% P, uh, 100% FiO2, you really have to consider seriously this as some sort of cardiac lesion. And not only it's a cardiac lesion, but it's a lesion that potentially may be ductal dependent. And so you need to start thinking about getting your central line in and, and considering PGE until you can get a better assessment of what exact, lesion, what exact type of lesion it is. Yeah. Still start the prostaglandins. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, if you're ever concerned, and this is what a cardiologist told me, if you're ever concerned, start your Just PGE. Just do it. Just do it. There's only two instances where... Um, it wouldn't be good, and that's like your TAPVR. It would cause overcirculation, so that's like one instance you don't want to do it. And there's another one. 
but I'm blanking. <laughs> but you wouldn't even know it, you know? You're just trying to save them. Yeah, so in the beginning, okay. yeah. In the beginning, you're, you're just trying to save them, right? Exactly. And then after that, like, by then, that's just stabilizing the baby, right? So you're getting your chest x-ray. You're trying to see if what's the heart size, what's their pulmonary vasculature. You're getting your echo, all these things to help you manage this and, like, calling your, you know, friendly cardiologist, all those kind of things to kind of help you assess. But in general, the, the quick, easy things you can do is really a good cardiac exam, pre and post ductal, right? If there's a if there's a SAD differential, you want to know that. You want to know if, if the pre's, it should be pre's higher than post. Remember, pre is the right arm. Exactly. Exactly. And, le- and the post is any other leg or any other extremity, it, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. The only times where the post is higher than the, the, the pre, it's one diagnosis and that's TGA. And until proven otherwise, for the most part, I'm generalizing, okay. but TGA. Yeah. Um, and so having that information, it's really quick, right? Getting that pre and post, getting getting a good exam and doing your, your ABG and doing like a little mini hyperoxia test. That can tell you so much information without a cardiologist right there with you. Great. All right. You've, we've reached the end. It's the last one. I've actually had a couple of these in my life. Um not me personally, but uh, the tracheoesophageal fistula, which I find pretty fascinating. TE fistula. Ooh, those are fun. Um, sometimes can be really challenging to diagnose depending on the type. Mm-hmm. Um, so TE fistula uh, is a, it's an issue uh, when you think of embryology early on within the first few weeks of life, like few weeks of gestation. Um, there's some sort of abnormality that causes in, a, in the growth or the development of the esophagus and the trachea. And depending on the type, we'll have different types. There's like the H type where there's a little connection between the esophagus and the trachea. Um, you can have, and then, or you can see the one where it's like a, just an esophageal atresia where you see it's a blind pouch and there's no connection to the stomach. So there's all these different types. We'll put some pictures on Twitter too, guys. It's on my list to do. So the ones that have that blind pouch, those are more obvious. The babies will present with a lot of secretions, may not be, if you start a feed with them, they like are choking up quite a bit. And when you do imaging, you'll, like x-ray, chest ab x-ray, you'll see, especially if you put an NG in, you'll see that it just coils up and it doesn't go to this, there's no connection to the stomach. And those are the easier ones to identify. But the ones that are like, let's say the H-type fistula, where esophagus connects right away straight to the the stomach you don't you won't see the tiny little fish on x-ray and so these babies those babies have a hard time um, our heart there's a hard time to identify them and sometimes don't get identified until you know a couple weeks of life potentially where they come presenting with they just keep having a lot of secretions or they keep having coming in for aspiration pneumonia and they have respiratory distress Um, and so those are the babies that are a little bit harder to diagnose um, but eventually do get diagnosed Uh, it's once it's identified you you end up getting your general surgeons involved um, and they'll be able to do the appropriate surgery depending on the type of lesion whether it be clipping the fistula or um, connecting the esophagus to the stomach depending on if it's a short short distance between the two, or if it's a long gap one, then the babies may need to stay in the NICU for a long time until they can grow the esophagus and then connect the two ends together. 
But yeah, those are, I mean, they definitely, a lot of times will present with respiratory distress and a lot of secretions. And so it warrants a lot of, it warrants workup. Workup being um, x-rays is the initial stuff. And then sometimes you'll do like uh, contrast studies as well to see if there's any other connections between the two, the two, uh, the trachea and the esophagus. Okay. Well, that was a lot of information, but it was amazing. So thank you so much for coming on and helping us. And everyone needs to go listen to NICU grad podcast and get some more information from Nina. And we hope that maybe you'll come back uh, again and cover some more stuff with us. Absolutely. This is a lot of fun. Um, I can keep talking for hours on end. (laughs) So I'm glad you're you're stopping me now. (laughs) But thanks so much. Well, thank you so much.